So Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 1. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labour. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one man, one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless.
Therefore, fear God. Hello, my name's Pete, uh, one of the elders here, if you don't know me. Uh, so open up your Bibles back up to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Um, does someone want to shout out what page number it was? 672, page 672. Turn back to that. Uh, we're going to look at all of Ecclesiastes 4 and the first bit of Ecclesiastes 5. So if you've not been here um, to follow the series so far, um, I'm not going to go through it all again, don't worry. Um, but it's one of the wisdom books of the Bible, Ecclesiastes, and it's kind of the words recorded, the thoughts of the teacher. So that's who the I is all the way through this passage. It's the teacher. And he's inviting us to really consider what the world is like and how we live wisely in it. It's a book full of wisdom. I wonder what was the first bit of wisdom you guys ever learned. I was thinking about what the first bits of wisdom we taught our children were. Uh, one of the things we used to teach our children is mummy always comes back because our kids used to cry when Jess left the room thinking that that was it, she was gone forever. So we used to say mummy always comes back. There's a good bit of wisdom for life. Uh, the other one that I was thinking that we taught them was we don't eat shoes. Bit more basic. <laughs> But it's not a good idea, is it, eating shoes? But somehow my children seem to think that was good. Or maybe it was this, stop, look, and listen. That's one of the first bits of advice we all learn, isn't it? How to cross the road safely. You get told, stop, look, and listen. Why do kids need that advice? Well, it's because they're in a rush, aren't they? They just want to bluster through, get across that road, and you're protecting them from danger. Well, tonight's passage, I think, calls us to stop and look and stop and listen. And it's a warning to us to protect us from danger, a warning for all of us. So have a look through the passage, you just get an idea of kind of the shape of the passage. The first, uh, say, three verses are first of all calling us to stop and look, look at the state of this world. Chapter 4 verse 1 says, again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. Literally, that says, behold the tears of the oppressed. Look, look at the tears of the oppressed. Look at the state of the world. Consider what you see. Then right at the end, chapter 5, uh, verse 1, uh, the sort of second sentence in verse 1 of chapter 5 says, go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. So when you go to the house of God, go near to listen. So when we look at the state of the world, when we stop and see the state of the world, all its depressing realism, what we need to do is to come to the eternal God, to come and listen. His voice is the voice we need to hear, to come and humbly listen to him. Yes, to pay attention. Thank you, Julian. So then in between those two sections, the rest of the uh, chapter four, we kind of get Ecclesiastes is sort of giving us a description of the endless work and achievement that you get by not stopping, not stopping and looking or not stopping and listening. And as we're getting used to in Ecclesiastes, as Andy reminded us, we get this kind of characteristic um, description that it's all meaningless. Remember, Simon's been telling us that word meaningless is kind of better translated like smoke or breath or vapor. It's something that can't be grasped. It's here and then it's gone. And grasping at it is like chasing after the wind. So that's where we're, we're kind of going tonight. We're going to try and stop and look 
uh, and then stop and listen. So first of all, stop and look. So have a look again at uh, verses one to three of chapter four. I'll just reread those. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they had no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who's never been born, who's not seen the evil that is done under the sun. It's a bleak picture of the world, isn't it? When the teacher looks across every corner of the earth, he sees oppression. People oppressed, people mistreated, abused, and there's no one to comfort them. No comfort. The oppressors always seem to have the upper hand. The oppressed have no relief. And he says this, it would be better to be dead than to keep living and seeing more of this going on. And it would be better actually to not even have been born than to be alive to witness this reality. Does that sound too bleak to you? Do we want to ignore that state of the world? Maybe most of the time we don't want to stop and look at the world like that. We want to have maybe a more cheery disposition, think positively about our lives, think positively about the state of the world. I think probably more likely we want to just bury our heads in the sand, keep scrolling through our phones for distraction and ignore these things that are too painful to consider. But here the teacher wants to remove us of that delusion of blind optimism or head in the sand attitude and just say stop and look honestly he's not trying to be pessimistic he's really just describing what it feels like when we do stop and read the news when we hear those stories of child sexual exploitation or abuse in care homes of the most vulnerable who need care people trafficked around the world and abused or even vulnerable people being abused in churches. Behold the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. That's the reality, isn't it? It's painful, but it's true. When we stop and look, we see the tears of the oppressed. And for some of you, maybe that's even closer to home. That oppression and suffering is something you experience. I think one thing these words remind us is that your suffering is seen it is seen by God he doesn't ignore it you know we mustn't ignore the oppression in the world either and Ecclesiastes reminds us we don't have simple answers to these things we don't have a trite response to the state of the state of the world but we do have a good and wise God that we should bring these things before but before we get to that before we get to bringing it before God the teacher wants to open our eyes to the meaninglessness of not stopping and looking. The meaninglessness of sort of glimpsing that oppression in the world and then rushing off to look for answers in endless toil and busyness. So we're going to split the rest of chapter four into three sections. These are three kind of ways of not stopping, three meaningless things. So we get the meaninglessness of overwork or underwork, the meaninglessness of selfish work, and the meaninglessness of achieving success in our work. So first of all, overwork or underwork. Uh, uh, verse four says, and I saw that all toil, that's work, and all achievement 
spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. It's kind of sense of the busyness of life in that verse, isn't there? A sense that life is all toil and achievement, all work and busyness. Sure, I'm not alone in starting each day with a to-do list, things that you've got to get through. Or actually, what I do is start with yesterday's to-do list and finish those. But the teacher isn't just trying to say, cool, aren't we all so busy? Isn't this terrible? He wants to get behind the motivation of it. What's driving this endless toil? Why aren't we stopping? And his conclusion in this verse isn't complimentary, is it? He says it all springs from envy, from wanting to have more than your neighbour. Now, sometimes that's literally... I'm a structural engineer. I work on helping to design people's extension. And I worked on an extension recently where the client said what they wanted was for their extension to be slightly taller than their neighbours. That was their main motivation for doing their extension. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But as we think about it, is that the motivation for why we're working? Why we're hoarding wealth? What are we saving for? Is it about envy? Is it about ensuring we're more comfortable, have better holidays, better car than those around us, or at least about keeping up with those around us. This passage says it's a chasing after the wind, if that's our motivation. It always leads to wanting more and will never arrive. We work and work, but never get that contentment. Skip down to verse 8. It says, there was no end to this man's toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. Envy is the enemy of contentment. It's a cruel taskmaster envy. It says, keep working, keep working, but it never rewards us. We never get there. We never grasp what we think we're reaching for because we find it's just smoke. You can't hold on to smoke, can you? It's a chasing after the wind. So then the teacher turns his attention in verse 5 to someone who goes the other way, someone who's not working hard. Verse 5 says, uh, fools fold that sorry fools fold their hands and ruin themselves maybe the translation you've got in front of you says the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh it's a picture of someone who says well i won't work then i'll keep myself to myself i'll ignore the oppression in the world i'll just look after myself i'll while away my days with entertainment i'll keep scrolling through my phone gaming watching whatever it is to distract myself he turns in on himself and literally he turns in on himself to the extent he ruins himself, eats away at himself. Obviously, he's not literally eating himself, but turning in on yourself eats away at your capacity to care for others, doesn't it? Eats away even at your self-control, eats away maybe at your self-respect. If you turn in on yourself like that, you will ruin yourself. Trying to grasp hold of some self-provided comfort ends only in grasping away at ourselves until we ruin ourselves, a chasing after the wind. But this passage does end, uh, this section about uh, overwork and under underwork does end in a kind of note of hope. Have a look at verse 6. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and a chasing after the wind. There is a kind of middle ground. There is wisdom to be found in not always striving to have more than the next person, and not just folding our hands, but better to have one handful with peace than two handfuls, but just be chasing after something we can never get. 
I don't want you to think from this that work is wholly uh, wrong. You know, work is not a bad thing. The Bible puts a high view on work and the dignity it brings. When God first put Adam in the garden, Genesis 2 verse 15, I think I've got it up on the screen there. It says this, Genesis 2 verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. So there we are, right from creation, we were given the dignity of having work, having a role, having a job to do. And as new creation Christians, Ephesians reminds us we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do the good works he's prepared in advance for us to do. We work because God has given us that special role. He's blessed us with the skills in our own work and he's blessed us with the opportunities to do that work. You see how different that is from working for envy. We don't work out of envy, we work for him. That is how we can work and have tranquility. We don't have to have two hands full. We can have one handful and have tranquility because we're working for him. We can live out that verse six because we can have peace in Christ knowing that he's given us this work to do. What a transforming effect that would have on our way of working if that's how we were motivated, that we were working for him. I wonder, have you taken time to stop and evaluate your work? I don't just mean your paid work. Maybe your work is caring for a family. Maybe it's serving the church. Whatever it is that takes your effort day by day, what is it that drives you to do it? Is it envy to get ahead of others? Is it to do as little effort as possible that serves your own comfort? We need to hear this warning. There's a risk that our work that takes up so much of our time can be a chasing after the wind. But we need to hear the encouragement too. Our work in God can have dignity and meaning and we can have that tranquility of working for him. So then our second section, the meaninglessness of selfish work. So the teacher kind of develops on this thought by telling the story of a man who was all alone. Have a look at verse seven and eight. We'll just read those again. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. So we've kind of zoomed in here from this general picture of toil and achievement springing from envy to this story of one particular man. Maybe he's like the CEO of his company, worked his way to the top, achieved all this wealth, and yet he's alone. He's got no family, he's got no friends, no one to share his wealth with. And one day he stops and says, what am I doing? Why am I working every hour of the day, depriving myself of enjoyment? What good is all this? He's got this two handfuls toiling to achieve wealth for himself, but it's left him empty. And this story just finishes with this too is meaningless, a miserable business. Why is it meaningless? He's achieving so much in one sense, isn't he? I think our world would probably say this guy is doing pretty well. Well, it's meaningless because it's smoke. 
the wealth, the achievement he's obtained for himself is here, but then it will be gone. He may not even get a chance to enjoy it. It's not permanent. That man's death hangs over him, doesn't it, as a reminder that one day all this will be gone. Hangs over him as a big kind of why. Why work so hard when it's all just a fleeting breath? But again, this passage gives us a note of hope in verse 9 to 12. It says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labour. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. It's better to work together than it is to be all alone. So in contrast to this miserable business owner who was all alone in his work, these verses talk of working for one another. The teacher says it's more profitable to work together. He says it's more practical, it's more secure. You can help each other out in those situations where one falls down. And then at the end of those uh, few verses I read, it says that three is even better than two. I'm not sure these verses are particularly about marriage. Sometimes you hear it talked about in that context. But rather, I think it's generally that we're better together. We were made to be in community, to be in relationship with others, and more than that, to work for others. So if all the wealth and achievement that that man made is like smoke, it just leads to misery, these verses are the solution. Give it away. Work for others. That's how to defeat the fact that you can't keep hold of your wealth. You can't grasp it. Give it away. Regularly, generously give. And you'll defeat that misery that comes from trying to hold on to it. Stop trying to hold on to that vapour. Breathe it out to others. And more than that, in your work, work for others. Let your motivation be to bless others and glorify God. I know I can so easily fall into the thinking that the purpose of my work is to accumulate wealth for myself and that giving to others or serving others is a kind of a small byproduct that I do on the side. Honestly, think about your day-to-day work, your motivation for it. Is that how you see it? The Bible much more describes work as a way to care for his world, be that keeper of the garden that we looked at uh, in Genesis 2, but also in helping and blessing each other, like in this passage here. And again, this picture of work is there right from the beginning. God made people to work together. If you could put up the next slide, maybe, Simon. I'm not sure if I did put a slide, actually. Genesis 2, verse 18, says, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. There's obviously all sorts of lessons that you can get out of that verse. But one is that we were made to be in community. We were made to work with others' interests at heart, to help one another. Now, for some of you in your work, that might be really obvious how you're to do that. Maybe your work is caring for someone, something like that, where you're so obviously serving someone. I'm a self-employed structural engineer. I work on my own at home, but I can honestly say that this passage still must apply to me, mustn't it? But work which is solely done with the motivation to serve ourselves, is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. It's smoke. 
You know, we all need to think through our own context in the light of God's work. Perhaps in my work, it's remembering that I can serve others by helping buildings not fall down. I'm pretty sure the Lord doesn't want buildings to fall down on people. That's way I can serve others. Perhaps in my context, it's that I can serve my family by providing for them. You're going to need to think what it means for each of you, whether you're single or married, whether you're in paid work, whether you've got colleagues, all these things. But the principle's the same. We work to serve and bless others. There's a joy in doing that, in defeating that kind of smokeness of selfish work and working for others. And Jesus was the ultimate example of this, wasn't he? The ultimate example of a life well lived. He worked in secular work for most of his life, yet he didn't end up with a store of hoarded resources. In fact, he had no possessions in the end, but he worked for us. He gave everything for us at the cross. So the final meaningless activity that the teacher wants to turn his attention to is uh, in verses 13 to 16 of chapter 4. And it's told through a story, a story of an old foolish king and a wise youth. Let's just reread that story. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were there before him. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So there's two characters in that story, isn't there? There's an old foolish king who doesn't take advice anymore. Maybe he was once wise, but now he's a fool because he doesn't know how to heed a warning. Then you get this youth who comes from poverty, but his wisdom causes him to rise up to be a king, succeeding and being more popular than that first king. But then that rags-to-riches story finishes on quite a sombre note, which maybe doesn't come as a surprise in Ecclesiastes by now. Because another generation of people come and they're not pleased with that new king. And the teacher again summarises the whole episode as meaningless, a chasing after the wind. It's a difficult story this. I think there's many lessons we could learn from this short story. But here's one. Even if you work wisely in your work and achieve status in your field, maybe get promoted to the top, even that is fleeting. In that sense, it's meaningless. It's like smoke. It's here, and then it's gone. You know, in the light of eternity, King Charles's reign will just be like the blink of an eye, won't it? So will your position in your company, in your career, your work. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't or can't reach the top of their field, just that we shouldn't be trying to achieve our own glory in doing this. You know, we were made to reflect God's glory. We keep going back to Genesis this evening, but it helps to think about what we were made for. Genesis 1.27 says this, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Each and every one of us was made to reflect God's eternal glory, be his image bearers. When we make 
work into achieving status, achieving glory for ourselves, we're twisting that, aren't we? We're trying to replace the eternal glory of God with our transient, smoke-piddling, pathetic glory. And it's just going to be a chasing after the wind. We need to just remember that that's not what work is for. We're working to reflect God's glory. But here's the amazing truth from each of these three meaningless things. When we stop and realise that life is not about enviously striving to gain more and more for ourselves or reach that position or status, we can begin to truly enjoy what God gives us. Now, life's much more about enjoying what God has given than trying to build up something, trying to gain something, but never achieve it. Now, we're creatures here on earth. We're not in control. There's a sense in which we can't grab hold of the things we need. We can never store up enough. We have that sense, don't we, that we're working for something, but we never quite get there. We never achieve it. And into that, our Heavenly Father says, stop. Stop your endless toil, trying to gain what you can't keep. I have everything you need, and I freely give to you. And through the Lord Jesus, we are heirs of lasting treasure, aren't we? An inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. So we can live in the freedom of receiving God's gifts. We can work hard, but without that burden of envy. We can work hard, serve the Lord, and serve others. There's real freedom in walking away from that grasping at smoke through envy and selfish work and getting work from his perspective, God's perspective, enjoying work with tranquility, with peace, by doing it for him and others. I don't know if you remember the show Crystal Maze. It's not a particularly modern reference. I'm aware of that. But at the end of the show, the teams would get a chance to spend some time in the Crystal Dome. It was like a greenhouse that had a big fan in it, and there was a load of gold and silver tokens that got blown around. And it looked like great fun standing in there having it blown around. But what they had to do was grab enough gold tokens and not grab the silver tokens. And it, invariably, they got it totally wrong, and they'd end up without any prize. And they always looked really, really stressed about trying to get the right tokens, like there was all about grabbing and grabbing and trying to get it right. I remember watching it as a kid thinking, they are just missing the enjoyment of being inside that dome. I'd give anything to be in there with those fans blowing and all the things going around us. I think it's a bit like how we can squander life by stressing about grabbing more and more, only to find in the end it's just smoke. Instead, let's remember we've got a generous father who's blessing and caring for us so we don't squander this life with selfish grabbing live instead in joyful freedom of trusting our father and serving others so we've looked at the state of the world we've been distracted by this busy meaningless toiling in the middle now we get to chapter five where we stop and we come near to god and listen I don't know about you, but Ecclesiastes can feel a bit to me like you're having the props kicked out from under you. Like we're having the crutches that we lean on to get through life removed. It can make us feel a bit adrift. 
when we're content to sort of not look at the oppression in this world and distract ourselves on our phones or when we're content to just keep busy achieving the next thing, the teacher says, get rid of all that. It's all meaningless. So what are we left with? What are we left with? Well, in his mercy, God wants us to be left with him. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Go to the house of God, go near to listen. When all around is smoke, when all those things we've relied on we find are just smoke, when we see the stark reality of the transient nature of what we're tempted to put our hope in, we come to God and find he is the rock. He's the one who never changes, who's eternal. Finally, something on whom we can depend. Something that isn't smoke. Kind of terrible truth in this passage is it wants to give us one more warning, though, as even this coming to God can become meaningless if we turn it into just babbling religion. Let's read those first few verses of chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. Do you see the thrust of those words there? Come to listen. Come to listen to God. The fool rushes into the house of God, ready to spout of loads of words in a rush, and it's the sacrifice of fools. And the teacher gives his characteristic assessment at the end of, uh, in verse 7, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Instead, go near to listen. His voice is the voice we need to hear. I love the end of uh, verse 2. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. And the conclusion of the whole thing, verse 7, therefore fear God. So we stop and look at the oppression in this world. We wish there were simple answers, don't we? We busy ourselves trying to achieve something lasting and meaningful, and in the end it all just turns out to be smoke. But these simple words just put us back in our place, but put us on solid rock too. God is in heaven, you are on earth, fear God. True wisdom isn't really getting to the point where we understand everything that's going on, where we know why all these oppressions occur, or even understand the suffering we're going through in our own lives. True wisdom is fearing the one who does know. God is in heaven, you are on earth. We're the creatures, he's the creator. We're not supposed to be able to sit above all of these things and sagely nod our heads and say, oh, I see what's going on here, I see how we can fix it. We're creatures, we will experience the world as we've seen in this passage. Yet we can know the eternal God. We can come to him, we can fear him, listen to him. He is our only hope. When we look at the world under the sun, when we see people oppressed everywhere, when we see that in our own lives and there's no one to comfort them, we come to Christ 
and listen. And we find there is a comforter. He is the God of all comfort. Jesus not only looked, Jesus not only stopped and looked at the oppression and saw the tears of the oppressed, he came and suffered. He was oppressed. He came to be oppressed for us. And one day he will wipe away every tear. Come to him, listen to him, the God of all comfort. And as we feel the burden of our work, that in our envy and in our selfishness, we're never satisfied. We come to Jesus and he gives rest. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus carries our burdens. Do you know, he never worked for envy. He never worked for himself. He worked for you and for me. He didn't hoard wealth or status. In fact, he laid aside all glory and all status, all the riches of heaven for you and for me. So that you can have that burden of striving removed so that you can come to the Father and listen. Listen to his words of comfort to you in this dark world. Therefore, fear God. You know, we stop our busyness, don't we? Those things that can crowd our mind, we come to him and we listen to hear his voice. Don't put your head in the sand. Don't try and distract your way through life. Come near to him and listen. Find your rest in him. Fear God. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, I want to thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you are so honest with us about the state of this world. And Lord, most of all, I want to thank you that you are God in heaven that you are the God of all comfort. Lord, we thank you for sending your Son to carry all our burdens. Lord, I want to repent for where I've worked for envy and selfishness, for comfort and wealth. Lord, may we live and work for you knowing you're our heavenly Father and you hold us safe in your hands. Lord, may we work for others. May we stand up for the oppressed in the confidence it comes from standing on you, the rock. Lord, we thank you that we found something that isn't smoke. We thank you that we found you. Lord, we just pray for others to see the glory of knowing you. Lord, we thank you for passages like this that open our eyes. Lord, may we often lift our eyes to you, to see you, to listen to you. Lord, thank you for your gracious words into our life. We thank you for your patience in speaking to us when so often we're not listening. Lord, thank you for your hand of grace reaching out to us again and again. Lord, we praise you. Lord, may we find our rest in you tonight and always. Amen.